0: We're going to select the scriptures this morning, not like a regular text. But let me give you the title of the message. The message is entitled, The Window Time for Salvation. I didn't put a window time because a window time would mean there's other times of windows and other windows. It is the window time for salvation. And, of course, there's only one day, and that is the day of the birth of Jesus Christ that brought it in. And we're going to see this through scripture You know, everyone knows that a window of time means um, uh, that it's only a time of opportunity for a set amount of time. And once that window of time closes, there's no more opportunity. It's gone. this is exactly what the Age of Grace is all about. It is uh, the allowance for sinners to call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. And it's through the gospel of Jesus Christ. No other way. And for this reason, the day Jesus was born is the most important day In the history of man. And it's characterized. By three truths that we want to look at. First. The day was in view of. The saving of man. So this is the big look. The whole force. You back off. You see it all. For saving man. Secondly. The day was in view of. Fulfilling prophecy. God's revelation. And then thirdly. The day was in view of announcing to man his need of being saved. That takes volition, as we're going to see. It doesn't happen automatically. So let's begin with the day in view of saving man. Adam and Eve, as you know, were created by God in the state of innocence. Uh, They had no sin nature. You and I could only understand that intellectually, saying and understanding that we as sinners have a bent towards sin. We can fail. We can fall to. We can get angry. They, on the other side, were void of all that. They had the potential, and the fall would bring it through. So what we can understand intellectually, but we will never know that experientially. We're so far removed. Um, God told Adam and Eve in chapter 2 of Genesis in verse 16 that they could eat of every tree of the garden, as you know, except for one right in the middle of the garden. Now, you know, as parents, even in the fallen nature now, we can understand that uh, what that does, because you have children. You say, now, make sure you don't go over Johnny's house. What's he going to do? He's going to go to Johnny's house now. Even though it's not exactly the same because they were innocent in terms of sin nature, yet the free volition is always present. They were not robots. Now this tree, Genesis 2.17 tells us, was a tree of knowledge of good and evil that would result in spiritual and physical death. The woman then was enticed, as you know, in chapter 3 of Genesis, verse 1 through 5, through the serpent to challenge God's authority, his word, his fairness towards God. Has God said? He knows you'll be God just like him. So the enemy, Satan, in our sin nature, always challenges God his fairness, his goodness, automatically. Your children... Think you're the most rotten parent in the world when you don't let them have their way. Because you used to think your parents were the most rotten parent when they didn't let you have your way. <laughs> when parents are really there to protect you and to direct and guide you, the same is God. The woman then took the bait and she did, did eat. And then she gave to her husband and he did eat, Genesis 3, 6 says. The thing that's interesting to me is that both of them being in this innocent, unfallen state, in a way that we will never know, but the instant that she ate, she had to have had the greatest awareness of what she did, the guilt, the shame, the understanding of now having a potential for sin to master her. And in spite of the horror of all what that took place, you would think she would say, I don't want my husband to go there. But she brought to him and he ate. This is the nature of sin. It's so powerful that it doesn't think of others at all. Only when it's convenient. But it doesn't think of others. Adam and Eve um, immediately tried to hide their sin from God In Genesis 3, 7, their eyes were open, it says, and they saw their nakedness in a different way, covering themselves with fig leaves. So immediately, they died spiritually. And physical decay began to take effect immediately. And one day, and ultimately, and finally, their physical being died. The longest living was Methuselah, 969 years. If you look at the catalog of that chapter, it says he lived so many years, he died, he died, he died, he died, he died. died. Everybody died except Enoch. He was translated to heaven. He's the only one that didn't didn't die. Kind of a parallel to the rapture of the church of those who were alive. Now, in chapter 3, verse 8, their plan was to hide from God among the trees, hearing him in the garden. Now, we all can identify with that. When we're doing something wrong, when we hear something, we're guilty, right? When you're not guilty, you don't have to fear anything. And God, knowing all this, called out to Adam. Where are you, Adam? Chapter 3, verse 9 of Genesis. Now, God didn't say this, that Adam might tell him exactly what tree he was behind. He wanted Adam to reflect Where are you now in relationship to me, since you have partaken of sin, you have disobeyed? Was it worth it? What has it done for you? Where are you at? Adam, in verse 10 of chapter 3 of Genesis, then justified himself declaring that he had heard his voice and was afraid because he was naked. And he hid himself instead of admitting his guilt. So right away we start seeing the effects of sin. It distorts, it doesn't, it's not truthful altogether. There's always um, uh, some type of explanation, if you will. And God asked Adam who told him that he was naked, trying to seek confession. From him there in verse 11 of chapter 3. That he had eaten of the tree that was prohibited. Now remember there's only two people created. The animals couldn't talk. So who told you? Sin nature now possessing Adam. He um, he blames the woman. Rather than confessing this sin and guilt in verse 12. And this is always the first thing we try to do. There's always a reason why I did what I did or said what I said. And if you wouldn't have done or said what you did, then I wouldn't have said and done what I did. So really, you're responsible for what I did. (laughs) But is it true? No. But it releases for an extent for a time. But it doesn't clear us. The human race now had um, inherited sin nature and would pass it on to their children. No exception. Therefore, every time um, you ladies bring us a daughter or a son, what a joyous day that is. But you know what? You just brought in another rotten little sinner. Cute, but a dedicated sinner. All the way. The problem with your children and mine is they're our children. They're just like us, sinners. Notice in verse 16 of chapter 3. The desire of the woman towards her husband was now different. She would desire to rule over her husband. Your desire shall be for your husband. Many say, well, that means sexually. No, this is the fall. Prior to the fall, everything was good. Whatever this means is bad. Only three times is this grammatical structure found in the Old Testament. Here, the next chapter, verse uh, 7, where Cain's sin wants to master him, desire over him. And then in Song of Solomon 7.10, the desire of a young man sexually for his bride that he's going to marry. Each one will give you the context. Right here... That she wants to rule him. This is the fall. The practice of the man would now be to rule over the woman. So it says, and he shall rule over you there in verse 16. So the battle of the sexes had begun, not in the roaring 20s or 30s, (laughs) not in the 60s of the 1900s, but in the garden. This would result in not living according to God's original design. As head and help me, but as equals without regards to distinction after the created order. You see, men and women are not equal. A lot of young people are being indoctrinated in the Trojan horse of America. Public education and universities. That's why you call a woman because you're not a man. That's why man is called a man, because he is not a woman. Two different beings. Both are equal before God in every level. But the distinction is for role and efficiency on the earthly level. And so now there is a conflict. Now there is a contest. Now there is an opposition. Now there is a war. The woman wants to usurp authority over the man. And the man wants to dominate the woman. Welcome to the human race. That's sin nature. Now both were no longer free to exercise their free will without the influence and effect of sin nature. So God then made a temporary provision for the forgiveness of their sin to be reconciled to God. It was by and through the blood of an animal. In chapter three, verse twenty-one, God killed a little animal, covered their nakedness with the skin, and the blood was the atonement price, the token for the temporary covering, not forgiveness—a covering, an IOU for the true payment to come. The Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, in John one twenty-nine. Yet, as a consequence, Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden for their sin. In verse 22 through 24 of Genesis 3 for two reasons. Now, at this point, many people who don't know God, they're not Christians. They say, well, this is unfair of God. God created them. God put them in there. He tempted them. And now he kicks them out. I don't want to do anything with a God like that. You think he's biting his nails over your concern? You think he's losing sleep? Getting some gray hair like me? No. No. But as a Christian, we look at this and we go, Lord, you are so great, you are so loving, you are so compassionate. Because he put them out, verse 22, to keep man from eating of the tree of life in a fallen state and thereby would live eternally in a fallen nature, unable to be redeemed. Because the promise of redemption was already given to them first in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman, the virgin birth, the Messiah. But secondly... To guard the way of the tree of life. They lived under the curse. So he places a cherubim with a flaming sword. To protect them from going back in. Now in a fallen nature. He'd go back in, partake of that tree. And he would be living eternally in a fallen state. That tree now was transferred to the cross. It would be offered again. It would be the tree of the cross of Jesus Christ. That people would be able to come back in. In a redemptive way. So what you look at here, you may charge God, but it's like a parent <clears throat> who has a son, a wayward son, or a daughter. And they've gone out of their way. They have spent time and money in terms of uh, taking care of them, going all the way. They get involved in drugs or whatever it may be. You fill in the blank. <clears throat> and you come to a place where you know that you have to ask them to leave. You have to put them out. Now, when a parent is driven to that state, he does not do it with a smile on his face. He doesn't do it with any joy in his heart. He does it with a brokenness, with a grief, with a lament. Because he loves his child and knows that if he doesn't draw that line, he will be literally responsible for whatever happens thereafter. So he does it in protection. This is God. This is one of the greatest signs of God's love here in the garden. You know, since 1962, when we began to exclude God, the Bible, and the Judeo-Christian ethic from America's morality, our nation has been plummeting down consistently, and now it's on a free fall. It didn't seem that notable at first, but uh, when we crossed 2000, we went into free fall. And it's very, very evident now. When you ignore the uh, warnings of God and the rules that God has placed, then um, you put yourself in great jeopardy. It may not manifest itself, but right now, I mean, I'm sure Adam and Eve looked and said, I'm still here. But spiritually, they were separated. Physically, they already began to die, but they didn't know it. All the attempts of man to deny that he is um, creating the image of God um, doesn't make it so. We're living in a society that whatever you say, that's, that, that, that makes it so. That's true. Because the internet says it, you know. And we accept stupidity and false statements. It's true. Man has um, a God conscience. Therefore, he has to oppose and distort it willfully. In Romans one nineteen and chapter 2, verse 15. Uh, all of us have experienced guilt through our conscience when we were little, didn't know God. First time you stole a candy bar, you took little Johnny's strike home, and your mom said, where'd you get that? I don't know. <laughs> but when they asked us, we well, when we were taking it, we were looking back, right? Let's Let's it's guilt. It's conscience. Who gave you that? God. But we can callous our conscience in such a way that we do the same thing over and over again, and pretty soon it doesn't bother us. We, we've distorted and destroyed our conscience. When you're born again, then your conscience, your conscience is recalibrated to the Word of God, to the ultimate morality, God's Word. Conscience is not sufficient. It's a warning sign, you no? Know? but it's not sufficient. Man has, um, has to deny and reject the visible design of the power of creation, Romans 2.20. He has to look up to the sky, the moon, and the sun and say, man... Isn't evolution incredible? You have to make it up. You're denying the power of God. Do you think this watch here just exploded and landed like this? You think the house that you live in, they dropped a uh, plane load of wood down and hit the ground and all of a sudden your house was made? Random chance or the big gap, the explosion. So order comes out of this order. These are smart people, but they have no room for God. So they settle for stupid theories, insulting theories, because if you don't, then you must embrace God. Man has to willfully reject and corrupt the truth and and nature and order of God on creation and embrace it as a lie. Romans 1, to 32. Professing themselves to be wise, they become fools. Worship the creature more than the creator, which is blessed forevermore. Rather than what God has done. Because there's an emptiness, vanity in this heart. Try to fill it with material things, fame, popularity, sex, drugs, whatever you want. Romans eight twenty. And though that may satisfy me for a set time and for a set period, and at the end I'll say, well, yeah, what's next? You go from one thing to the other. There's never any satisfaction, whatever it may be. All the evidence about man throughout history to the present day denies his proclaimed goodness also, as you look at the world. The massacres of dictators, the terrorist acts that were seen throughout the world by ISIS, not ISIL, ISIS. ISIL includes Levin. Israel. That's why he says ISIL. It's ISIS. How do you explain the evil that they do? Where they kill babies. They rape women. Is it the goodness of man? Hmm. The all-time low of morality, ethics, and hatred for God. The accompanied love for self in our society and, and the world. The entire political correctness of our day of being non judgmental, accepting all truth as God's truth or absolute truth, value clarification, situational ethics. Do you realize that um, um, cultural diversity is an oxymoron? Diversity means different, not the same they redefine the word to indoctrinate people. This is what man does against God's truth. Twist it, contort it. They make their new dictionary, so they raise up their new army. They don't care about old school. They know old school is going to die 15, 25 years are gone. They're raising up a new army. New vocabulary, new marching orders. Now, we all understand where we're headed. We're headed for a one-world government, a one-world monetary system, one-world religion, the Antichrist. So we know these are stepping stones. Okay? So we understand this. But the world doesn't. It's totally blind. Listen to uh, Jeremiah 13, 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? rhetorical question with only one answer. It's no. But I like his response. Listen. Then may you also do good who are accustomed to doing evil. Ooh. It would be much more probable for a leopard to change the spots than for you and I to do good as sinners. (laughs) Wow. Can you see why the birth of Jesus Christ is the most important day in history to provide the window time for salvation? If he hadn't been born, then there would be no cross, there would be no death, there would be no payment, there would be nothing, right? In fact, the prophecies of God would have been proven false, and he would have proven to be a liar, and you could throw your Bible away. So the day was in view of saving man. Now, secondly, the day was in view of fulfilling prophecy, and we've kind of implied that. God made um, this important day known from the foundation of the world. Listen to Revelation 13.8. All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose name have not been written in the book of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. He's talking about the tribulation period and the Mark of the Beast and the Lamb of God, which was slain from the foundation of the world. So God had declared this thing before it even all happened. The fall did not take God by surprise. God foreknew the fall. Therefore, he made provision for the redemption of man prior to the fall. Now, some Christians teach that God predestined the fall. Now, think through it now with me. It's called Calvinism. Okay? That means that God declared Adam to fall. Adam had no option but to fall. If that is true, then God is responsible for the fall and for the sin. And therefore, the punishment of Adam is unjust, unholy, not good. And that's not the God of the Bible. The Bible says that Adam was warned against the consequences. He chose to go against them. Therefore, the judgment of God over Adam and Eve was absolutely holy, just, and good. Because he had nothing to do with the decision. Are we clear on that? So be careful about Calvinism. It's death in the pot. It's Sinai. Sinai. People often ask, if God knew about the fall, why did he not do something about it and avoid it? Simple. He never violates man's free will. He gives you a free will. You're, you're, you're created with volition, the power of choice. You had the, the choice who you marry. I, I presume that uh, nobody forced you to marry your wife or your husband. If they did, do you think that you would love them? If you force somebody, say, when I walk in this room, you better say you love me. And you better come out and give me a hug and kiss me, your wife, or else you're dead. And so you would knock on the door and she would do that. Would you really believe that she really loved you? No, she feared you. She didn't want to get hurt. The thing about love, for love to be valuable, it must be voluntary for it to be valuable. That's why we as Christians know when people love us, It is a very valuable love because we're not that lovable. And we really don't deserve it. The greatest privilege is for you to be able to love someone wholeheartedly by the grace of God. It's a willful love. Therefore, it's a valuable love. God declared the day of to Adam and Eve in Genesis three fifteen. I've already mentioned it. Genesis three fifteen is the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The promise of redemption was given to Adam and Eve there in Genesis three fifteen, and the reference is to the seed of the woman, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, and um, the woman carries um, the egg, and the man carries the seed, and so therefore there in that text, it's is the bruising of the head and the heel. So. The Messiah would, would destroy the authority of Satan, the head, while Satan would only bruise the heel, a temporary wound at the cross. So you have there the prophetic proclamation, not only of the day, the greatest day in history, the birth of Jesus Christ, but that he would destroy the authority and power of the devil. If that's the only verse we had, you have the whole gospel and promise of redemption right there. That's it. the clear understanding of the prophecy is evident by the names given to their sons adam and eve perhaps thinking one of them would be that redeemer for the human race cain means acquired and seth means appointed but it would be a virgin who would bring forth those uh, that seed without the aid of a man that's what it implies now, God made the day known to the prophets also. Let me give you just about three of them. Uh, Isaiah seven fourteen says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin, not a virgin, the virgin, shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. God with us. Matthew picks this up. Jesus Christ was God and man. 100% God, 100% man. He wasn't the 50-50 bar. Okay? God became man. Micah 5.2 says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrata, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me, the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth is from of all, from everlasting, from the vanishing point to the vanishing point, from eternity. Bethlehem. Very specific way, a virgin. Very specific place, Bethlehem. And then he says, Behold, I will send my messenger, Malachi. And he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts, the captain of the armies of heaven. The prophecy of the messenger to come, John the Baptist, to proclaim his cousin, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Malachi is the last prophet who closes the Old Testament. Then there's 400 years of silence. John the Baptist opens up the New Testament. Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. The kingdom of God is at hand. What is the proclamation? Repent. Wow. Malachi closes with repentance. John the Baptist opens with repentance. Now, God would bring the day to pass just as he promised. Paul gives us the appointed season, literally. But when the fullness of time had come, God had sent forth his son, born of a woman, under the law. Galatians 4.4. The word kairos is season, a set period, absolute specific period. Right on time. That's why it's the most important day in the history of mankind. John recalls that at a set point in time, God took on the human body and fulfilled this prophecy. Uh, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and God was the Word. John 1.1 1, 1, and verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and we beheld His glory, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. God became man, the incarnation. Yet when they looked at Jesus, they saw a man. Paul says to the Corinthians, if they, if they could know by looking at Jesus that He was God, they would have never crucified the Lord of glory. <laughs> they would have dropped those hammers and ran. You see, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, they knew they were taking spikes and inserting them into his wrists. They knew that they were going to crucify him. He was going to die one of the most horrible deaths. What Jesus meant is they didn't understand the ramifications of their sin and the consequences long-term ways. You see, when a young man steals a car or shoots somebody, or a young person gives away their purity. They know what they're doing. They don't understand the ramifications and consequences and the impact of their life for the rest of their life and eternity. That's the problem with sin. It's deceptive. Peter writes that it took place in these last days. Listen to 1 Peter one twenty: He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. So God, again, is very specific prophetically, and he fulfills it. Paul declared that we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1, 4 says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Now, don't let predestination baffle you. God predestined, and you get to choose. No contradiction. Okay? Okay? But don't ever believe that God predestined the chosen frozen, a few, and then predestined the the remainder of humanity to go to hell. Because you never find that in Scripture. Not only that, if all of humanity has fallen and all deserves hell, and God sovereignly chooses a few to save and damn the rest, he cannot be holy, he cannot be good, he cannot be just, he's just violated his attributes. God died for all. When John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but everlasting life. The world, whosoever, that's all humanity. Don't let somebody change whosoever to the elect, the chosen, frozen. Because you you're your, 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 your defaming the character of God. You're accusing God of being partial to what he says we're not to be. You're accusing God of being unjust, unholy, unkind. No, God gives an equal opportunity to everyone. Every person that's born into this world will have one opportunity at least to be saved. When you or I would end up in hell, it would not be God's doing. It would be my doing. My choosing. To believe the gospel or to receive the gospel. Reject it or receive it. Believe it or reject it. One of the two. So, there are two parallel lines on this side of heaven. We don't know how they cross, but never let them contradict each other. You've got a left and a right. they are two hands. But one's left and one's right. You don't have two right hands. They're equal parallels. You know, I've told you often that just eight prophecies um, would be equivalent to the entire state of Texas being filled with silver dollars. And then um, getting a giant blender, stirring them all up after you've marked one of them with an X. And then getting a the blind man to go out there and just happen to pick out the one that you marked. That's the equivalence of just eight prophecies that Jesus Christ fulfilled with a normal amount of factors in it. Do you realize Jesus Christ fulfilled over 300 prophecies in his first coming? On what basis would you be confident in saying that he would not fulfill the rest of his prophecies or even the second coming? If he's 100% accurate so far, on what basis? (laughs) Because you're the ultimate truth? Because wisdom resides in you and when you die, that's it? Because you have a PhD after your name? Wow. We have more manuscript evidence than any ten pieces of classical literature. Those of you who are in university, listen up very clearly because your department will never teach you this. A.T. Robertson, New Testament scholar, declared... That we have, listen carefully, 8,000 manuscripts of Latin Vulgates, 1,000 earlier versions, 4,000 Greek manuscripts, 13,000 portions. Most, if not all, of the New Testament can be reproduced from early church writers. Warfield, Philip Scholl, Scholl both declare that the word has been transmitted to us with no or next to no variations because we don't have any. Original autographs. We have copies, but we have so many copies that we can certainly decipher the minute this difference, which is so minute that you probably have ninety nine point nine nine of the original text. Okay. Now, each misspelled word. You have to watch Christian footnotes because not Christians are not all up, up and up. Okay. Especially publishing houses today. When your Bible says that, um, if they find a misspelled word in a in a in a uh, manuscript. That's one misspelled word. If there's a thousand manuscripts of that, they say there's a thousand variations, mistakes. No, no, no. There's one mistake with a thousand manuscripts. Or your Bible may say this is not found in the best of manuscripts. It's talking about the Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, and Alexandrian texts. But what it doesn't tell you in your footnote is that this is found in 5,000 other manuscripts. (laughs) So even as a Christian, you have to put your thinking cap on. and You have to ask the right questions. You have to do the study. You can't just believe people. You have to check it to the Word of God. Compared to other authors of the past to substantiate something as genuine and true is important. The Bible was written in the latter part of the first century, as you know, Okay? It was completely written already by, before the, the end of 100. John was the last one, 95, 93, Book of Revelation, okay? The seven plays of Sophocles are accounted as authentic texts, yet the manuscripts are 1,400 years after his death. Ask your professor in university, if he'll be honest to tell you that. <laughs> the history of Thucydides. 460 to 400 B.C., known to us only by eight manuscripts. Eight to the thousands we have, yet the earliest is 900 years. The New Testament, within 30-40 years. The history of Herodotus, 488 to 428 B.C., no one ever doubts it. No one has ever doubted it to this day. Yet the earliest manuscripts we have are 1,300 years later. You see, they don't put the same criteria to the literature of the world compared to the Bible. They're hypocrites. They're dishonest. There's no comparison to the Bible evidence about Jesus being God, the Savior of the world. It cannot be denied. All a person can do is reject it. But not on the basis of the lack of evidence. It's on the basis contrary to all the evidence. You take the New Testament, take it into a court of law. And you provide all the evidence in the New Testament. Hands down, Jesus was God, died for our sins, rose from the dead and the third day. The evidence is all there. You have to close your eyes willfully. Listen to Numbers 23, 19. It says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. Has he said it? Will he not do it? Or has he spoken? Will he not make it good? There's only one answer. Yes. You say no, you failed. God cannot lie. He knows the end from the beginning. Nothing escapes him. Can you see why the birth of Jesus Christ is the most important day in history? The day was in view of fulfilling prophecy. But thirdly, the day was in view of announcing to man his need of being saved. This is where Man comes in because God doesn't force anybody to be saved. It's an invitation. God initiated to reveal to Adam and Eve their sin that they were lost. He told Adam, where are you? In Genesis 3, 9. He sought to cover his sin outwardly with fig leaves as man does today with many different things. We've gotten to the place where even the Christian community said, well, we we really don't sin anymore. We just make mistakes. That's what's being taught in the emergent Church many times. Okay? Society, for sure, they don't believe in sin. They think it's some kind of Christian way of scaring people uh, out of hell. You can't scare nobody out of hell. You can't even scare the hell out of people. People make a choice to go to hell. Every person this morning in hell is a believer. They believe what you are hearing is true. But it's too late. The window has closed for them. There's a window time. Your death or the coming of Christ. Once that's closed, there's no second opportunity. He sought to blame another for his sin, as man always does. It's the woman you gave me. But later, wait a minute, wait a minute. You gave me the woman, the woman is falls So really, you're at fault. So Adam was a Calvinist. <laughs> Adam was a Calvinist. He blamed God for the fall. It's the woman you gave me. And since you gave me the woman, you're really at fault. The lie of Satan. In Genesis 6, God invited Noah to believe him. He initiated and revealed to Noah the sin of the world in chapter 6. He proclaimed judgment to come despite their unbelief for 120 years. He proclaimed it. He built the boat. Everybody could see it. The animals came in. He gave a set time to repent in the midst of unbelief. While knowing that no one would believe apart from the eight. How long would you have waited? I would have smoked them. Next second. If I know they're not going to repent. But God has allowed judgment to be slow. So that no one can ever accuse him through history of being impatient. Or quick to judge. He made the way of salvation in the ark. Eight souls got saved. That's it. God also initiated to reveal the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah to Abram. As you know in Genesis 18. Abraham is called a friend of God as he interceded for Sodom and Gomorrah. His nephew Lot was there. And Abraham saw the faithfulness of God in delivering Lot. And God initiated to reveal the sin to Israel through the prophets, as you and I are very familiar with as we study the Old Testament. Isaiah was unfit. So God sent an angel from his altar with a coal to touch his lips and purify him and sanctify him and sent him to proclaim the message of repentance to his people. Jeremiah was but a child. God says, don't say you're a child. I've made you a prophet to the nations. And he sent him to proclaim the hypocrisy and the captivity to come. Ezekiel was sent to Babylon to confirm God's judgment and to accept it. Daniel was sent to serve God in the palace of Babylon in order to reveal the judgment of the Gentiles, the head of gold, Babylon, the arms of silver, Medo-Persia, the belly of brass, Greece, the legs of iron, Rome, the last empires, the ten-toe, the confederacy of ten nations, part iron, part of clay. They don't mix together the reign of the Antichrist. And then a stone hit the ankle. And the whole image fell. That stone was not made with hands, virgin birth, And it consumed the whole earth, the kingdom of Jesus Christ. There you have the empires of the world. Listen to me carefully. What is the next kingdom after the legs of iron Rome? The Tentos. Islam will never get their caliph as long as the church is here. They may be part of the kingdom of the Antichrist. But it won't happen as long as we're here. Because if it does happen, you can throw your Bible away. The next empire after Rome is the Ten Nation Confederacy. Isn't it good to know the Word of God? Now, they're going to continue hassling people. I don't know how long they're going to go, where they're going to penetrate. But they will not have a world empire. Or you can throw your Bible away. It's real simple. God initiated and sent John the Baptist then to reveal the sinful state of every man and their need of repentance in Matthew 3, verse 1 through 12. His message was of repentance. His message was that the arrival of the kingdom of God had come. His message was that, uh, was to the religious people and to profane all. Uh, Paul says to the Romans um, that Christ died for the ungodly. I presume you qualify. I certainly do. His message was judgment to come. People don't want to hear that today. You must proclaim judgment to come. If you reject the salvation of God by grace, then the only thing that you have to look forward to is judgment. It's not a choice. God's not saying you want grace or you want judgment if you reject it. If he initiates to you, he says, I die for you, you can be saved, but if you don't, judgment falls. So you've got a choice to be forgiven, but you don't have a, a choice to escape judgment if you reject forgiveness. It's impossible. His motive was and is love for mankind, the world. His gift is his only beloved son, John three sixteen. His invitation is for whosoever believes in him should not perish. Whosoever, not the elect. And the elect must always be judged in its context. Is the elect Jew or is the elect the saints in the church? Context, context, context. And his promise is that you will have eternal life. We try to appraise this academically, intellectually alone, apart from the revelation of God. We think it's foolishness because we make ourselves God. We have arrived. Let me give you a little secret. In all of man's history of um, knowledge and discovery, we are probably the greatest period of history in terms of information and advancement technologically, but in education, in common sense and goodness, probably the lowest. Of all generations. To those of much is given. Much more is required. The judgment is greater. Because you're sinning against the light that you have. God initiated and continues to send preachers of the gospel. To proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Paul preached repentance through Jesus Christ. No other. Wesley preached repentance through Christ. No other. Luther preached repentance to Christ, no other. I've been preaching repentance to Christ, no other, for 42 years, and I will never change that message, even if I go to jail. And if we continue, one day I will go to jail, if it continues. Matthew 1, 20 and 21 says he came as a baby, conceived by the Holy Spirit to save his people from their sins, his people the Jews he came to his own his own received them not but then john says there 's one coming whom he, they will receive the Antichrist they rejected Jesus Christ, they will embrace antichrist daniel nine hundred twenty seven confirms this in many of the prophets his birth was announced by angels saying, "Listen to the message. What a glorious, glorious message! What an incredible day! Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill towards men." Luke two fourteen. The day of history. The wise men said, "Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? For we have seen a star in the east, and have come to." worship him. Herod didn't like that. You know, Daniel was in Shushan, the palace, very influential. These magis probably came from there. Iran is Persia. You understand that, right? Some of you that are younger. (laughs) In the 60s, it changed to Iran from Persia. You know, the distance between the Earth and the moon is uh, approximately 239,000 miles. It takes 27.3 days for the moon to complete a full uh, revolution around the Earth, and it takes exactly the same time for the moon to spin once on its own axis. This means that the moon remains at a standstill in relationship to the Earth's movement so that it always represents the same face to the earth, always. On Christmas of 1968, astronaut Frank Borman, William Anders, and James Lowell became the first men to see the other side of the hidden face of the moon. So impressed were they of God's creation that they read from Genesis 1. Why? In awe of God's creation. In the very same way, God wants to reveal to you His Son who has been hidden from you due to the darkness of your own sin in order that you be impressed by hearing and believing in His gift of salvation for you. Just like that dark side of the moon that no one has ever seen. The son is hidden from you by your sin. But God wants to reveal him to you. God has met every provision necessary for your salvation in the person of his son that he sent to the earth. God became man through the incarnation, as you know. And God limited himself for a set time under flesh, yet without sin. He walked on this earth, he tired, he ate, he slept, he bled, and he died, just like regular man, yet without sin. God made an actual payment for the forgiveness of your sin and mine through his birth, death, and resurrection as the God-man. He said from the cross, it is finished. What was finished? The work of redemption, the atonement, the payment for mankind. God made an actual payment for the forgiveness. The payment was paid at the cross. The confirmation is seen in the empty tomb. The angel says, why do you seek him among the dead? He's alive. God, having done everything for your salvation and mine, then is waiting for you to respond to the message of salvation. An invitation that comes from his love. You come believing Jesus was your substitute at the cross. Second Corinthians 2, 521 says that he became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. You realize that statement that God took his holy son, perfect son, God himself, and he put all your sins and mine upon him, and he took his holiness and made it available to me. Now, who do you think got the best deal? But I can reject that. Just like you can ask a young woman, gentleman, to marry you. And she says, no. Bummer. But it's a choice, right? Now, she may be passing the best thing of her life. Or she may be making a wise decision. But it's a choice, right? To pass up the invitation of God is foolishness. It's always the wrong choice. That will not only affect me here on earth, but for all eternity once I give my last breath. You come by grace through faith, that not of yourself as a gift of God in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. You come as you are. Agreeing with God you're a sinner, deserving hell, the wrath of God on you, and that you're an enemy to God. But that he died for your sins, and he's willing to forgive you of your sins by grace through faith. And that he will make you a new creature. Second Corinthians five seventeen: All things pass away, everything becomes new. He gives you a divine nature. Gives you a new mind. Gives you a new life. Gives you the word of God. He directs and guides you through life to make you more like him to the day you die. Wow. Can you see why the birth of Jesus Christ is the most important day in history? Without it, the rest wouldn't have happened. That's why we celebrate Christmas. Yes, most likely he wasn't born in December. Probably October. I don't care if he was born in January or August. Listen to me. That's why I named it the window, not a window. It is the only window. Every other window is a lie. And though it may not be politically correct today, you have a choice to either go with the program of the world or to stand tall and say, no, you're wrong. I don't tell people... Happy holidays. I tell them Merry Christmas. They don't like it tough. I don't really care. Makes no difference to me. The day was in view of announcing to man his need of being safe. Maybe God has spoken to you. And you see your need of being safe. What are you going to do about it? Maybe over the internet or over the live radio broadcast. Or here right now. It's the window. And the window has been closing. We've been in that open window for 2,000 years. Around about. How much longer? We have no idea. But for sure, it's when you die. Or the Lord comes back. I would not put it off. The reason the day Jesus was born is the most important day in the history of man then is characterized by these three truths that we looked at. The day was in view of of saving man. The day was in view of fulfilling prophecy. And the day was in view of announcing to man his need of being saved. And so we pray that you repent from your sins and enter the kingdom of God that you may really know the reason for the season of Christmas. Jesus Christ, no one else. Father, thank you for your goodness, your love, and your grace. Deal with our hearts, and we thank you. We pray for those who are listening, Lord, whether it be here or on the Internet or the radio. We pray that you would be glorified. You would deal with their hearts. If you're out there, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then God has brought you here to be saved. If you see yourself as that sinner and a sinner in need of salvation, then this is your prayer to him. It's a prayer of repentance. And you can ask him right where you sit, and he is going to save you and forgive you right now. This is your prayer to Jesus, not to us. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.